Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It's the weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in this week for John Cullen Hill. My family has lived in New York City for a few generations. In the late 1960s, my aunt secured a visa to travel from Haiti to the United States. Then, one by one, my other aunts and uncles, grandparents and parents all made their way to the United States and settled down in Brooklyn. During this time, they fled the dictatorships of Haitian leaders François Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Duvalier. Their entry back then wasn't without hiccups or the fears around relocating your life to a new country. Immigration has always been fraught, but migrants today are facing a new set of challenges. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. That's Mayor Eric Adams speaking about the influx of asylum seekers to the city at a town hall earlier this month. Since April 2022, more than 115,000 migrants have arrived in New York City, many of whom are seeking asylum from political and economic hardships in their home countries, not unlike my family. The city has said it is running out of space and is on track to spend $12 billion over the next three fiscal years. The circumstances make it clear. The U.S. immigration system is broken. The country desperately needs immigration reform as humanitarian emergencies, from wars to dictatorships to climate change, threaten vulnerable populations. Immigration courts are slammed, and immigrants have only narrow paths to becoming permanent citizens. Still, some advocates warn this is not a crisis, though Adams's language might suggest that it is. The city has been successfully absorbing migrants, you know, since the earliest days of this country, almost. That's Julia Gillette, an associate director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute, where she studies the implications of local, state, and federal immigration policies. We know that overall, immigrants integrate into the United States. They see upward mobility over time. Their kids do even better than they do. And immigration has been such a source of strength for New York City. Critics believe that there are clear steps lawmakers can take to alleviate the burden on the city. They could expedite work authorization for asylum seekers, provide housing vouchers, and better connect migrants with legal counsel. In response to desperate pleas for help from Adams and other Democrats, the Biden administration announced that nearly half a million Venezuelan asylum seekers are eligible for Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, a designation that would allow them to live and work in the U.S. for 18 months without the threat of deportation. Today on The Weeds, we dive into the migrant influx in New York City to understand why it is happening and how expedited work authorization could change a lot for the city 
and for migrants themselves. But first, what is it about New York City where the cost of living is so high and affordable housing is scant that has drawn so many migrants in to begin with? Here's Julia again. I think it's a combination of factors. You know, we did see that Governor Abbott in Texas was sending buses of migrants to New York City as a political statement. We also know that a lot of migrants do have ties in New York City. They may have friends or family or neighbors that they're joining in New York City. And New York City also has an international draw. Migrants have seen it in movies and on TV shows, and they know that it's you know, a city of opportunity where a lot of immigrants have gone before, and so they may just choose to go there for that reason. Start spreading the news. New York City also has something called a right to shelter, a unique mandate that requires the city to shelter anyone in need. Under increasing pressure, Mayor Adams recently issued a 60-day limit on shelter stays for adult migrants without children a move that some experts say could put more migrants on the street. It's also an attempt to deter other asylum seekers who might want to travel to the city. I asked Julia where this wave of migrants is coming from. We've seen an enormous displacement of migrants from Venezuela since the country has had socialist leadership and the economy has tanked and people are facing political repression and extreme poverty and hunger in Venezuela. There's been a huge push of people out of the country. Many of those migrants have stayed in South America. Colombia is hosting millions of Venezuelans and other countries in the region are as well. But many Venezuelans have also come to the United States. And particularly since the COVID-19 pandemic, some of the economies in South America have really been struggling. And Venezuelans there have had difficulties getting by, whereas the U.S. economy has recovered really strongly and has been really hungry for workers and, you know, providing opportunities for new migrants that arrive. Haiti is facing its own set of really difficult conditions right now. There's tremendous gang violence. The government isn't really functioning right now. And many, many people are needing to flee for safety. There were also Haitians who were living in South America as well, who had left in earlier waves. But again, because of the economic challenges, decided to make a second move and come north towards the United States. And the way it's being framed, it feels like this is an unprecedented moment, that this many people have never come to New York City in in such large numbers. Is that actually the case from your analysis? That's a really good question, and I don't know. I guess I haven't seen the numbers to know if that's true, but I would just have to imagine that in the Ellis Island days, there were more immigrants coming to New York City, and it was the gateway to the United States for much of the world, particularly for Europe. And there were just huge numbers of migrants who were coming. More recently, we have seen periods of high numbers of arrivals. In the late 1990s, in the early 2000s, a lot of people were entering the U.S. without authorization. At that time, more were staying kind of in the southwest of the United States rather than making their way further north. So I think we might need to look to further back history to see kind of a comparable period. But I don't know that this is 
so off trend from kind of more recent years. We know a lot of Central Americans have been coming and they might not be settling right in Manhattan, but may have been going to communities in Long Island and upstate New York and in New Jersey. So I think the kind of New York region has been seeing a lot of migrants for a while. It does seem like now there are a lot of migrants coming who don't have ties in the United States and they don't have someone whose couch they could crash on or who they can turn to to help them in their early months when they're trying to figure out their way in the United States. And so they are turning to the government instead. Right. And I I feel like there have been reports lately of, you know, police officers showing up to homes where there are like two dozen migrants living in in a house and in response to that, Adams is calling on the federal government and also the state government to help with moving and relocating migrants to whether it's upstate or to other states and regions. Do we have precedent for that? Like, are there other moments in U.S. history when government has led an effort to relocate migrants in a way that doesn't seem as cruel as, you know, Abbott or DeSantis flying them up north or, or busing them up north? I don't know if we've seen this kind of conflict between cities and between states of trying to move migrants around. What we have seen in a much more orderly and coordinated way is that when refugees are arriving to the United States, so refugees are already screened for their need for protection and they arrive with status, there's an orderly system where nonprofit organizations and the governments and communities talk and they decide where refugees who don't have U.S. ties should be placed. And there's an effort to locate refugees in cities where the cost of living isn't too high, where there are social service providers that can help them, where there might be, you know, other people from their countries that have already settled and could maybe assist them. So there's kind of a thoughtful process for locating refugees around the United States. For other migrants who show up on their own, it's always been up to them to decide where to settle in the United States But with many migrants coming who don't have strong ties and sort of are shopping around and figuring out where to go, those are the migrants that might be open to taking a bus that a city is providing for them or a state is funding, and they may or may not be open to relocating once they kind of find an initial city to settle into. So Adams has placed blame on a number of factors, mostly pointing fingers at the Biden administration and the lack of comprehensive immigration reform uh, from Congress. But he's also said that Trump administration policies, climate change, overwhelmed immigration courts, and the narrow paths that immigrants face to becoming permanent residents are all factors that are forcing cities to bear the load of supporting migrants uh, as they try to establish themselves here. So from your perspective, how would you rank those factors? Like, is there their truth to the fact that there are a lot of uh, different areas that could be doing more to, to help alleviate this pressure on cities? There are a lot of contributing factors, and it all comes down to the fact that our immigration system is broken, but it's broken in all kinds of ways. It's broken because we haven't updated our immigration laws since 1990. There are a lot of employers who want to hire immigrant workers, and they're desperate for workers. There are a lot of migrants who want to come and work in the United States, And our laws don't facilitate those connections and those pathways. For people who don't have a college degree and don't have a close family member in the United States, there are almost no pathways for them to come and live in the United States. And so coming without authorization is their best option. We also haven't really been focusing our refugee resettlement on the Western Hemisphere. 
We have been admitting a lot of refugees from further abroad, from African countries, from Syria prior to the Trump administration, from European countries, um, that we haven't really focused on resettling refugees from the region. So there are a lot of people who are fleeing situations of violence and persecution, but they don't have access to that refugee resettlement system. So they come on their own as asylum seekers. We also know that our immigration courts are severely backlogged with millions of cases and people are waiting years and years to have their cases resolved. That sends the message that if you come to the United States, you'll be let in because you are let in for years while you wait for your immigration court date. And that sends kind of a, a misperception about how open the United States is to new migrants. So there are certainly a lot of ways that our system is broken that are contributing to the high numbers of people coming without visas to the U.S.-Mexico border. And what about the effect of it on other people, right? Like AOC led a talk in front of the, the Roosevelt Hotel that's serving as an intake center for newly arrived migrants. And she was just interrupted by a bunch of protesters who were chanting, close the border, close the border. And it, it seemed like these people were ready to fight and and I'm not sure how much of this is some kind of a controlled way that people are trying to protest this and make it seem bigger than it is. But there was another protest on Staten Island with about 400 residents who came out to protest a shelter. Like, is there any worry that this could lead to violence against migrants and immigrants in New York City? Things are are getting really challenging, I think, in New York City. And there's such pressure between the service providers that are struggling to meet migrants' needs and the migrants that are struggling to figure out how to make their way in the United States and then all of the people observing this really messy process. And then you layer on that the national politics. You know, it's been a successful strategy for Republicans to hammer the Biden administration on their failures on immigration and at the more local level for politicians to run on immigration issues and, and try to politicize this. So I think that that framing that happens at the national level and in the news and in the media can, you know, kind of amplify whatever is happening locally and change how people interpret it. It's really been a success, I think, of Governor Abbott. He wanted to bus migrants to cities that had labeled themselves sanctuary cities to give them a sense of what border communities were facing and the challenges, you know, that arise when migrants arrive without planning and present needs for basic services. And New York City has played right into that. You know, they've really struggled <laughs> to meet these needs and they've joined Texas in criticizing the Biden administration and talking about the challenges of arriving migrants and emphasizing the negative impacts of immigration. So I think that's really been beyond Governor Abbott's wildest dreams, probably of what his busing could do and, and kind of how that could change the rhetoric. So that's what's happening in New York City. Up next, how the current work authorization process may be worsening the crisis. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. 
Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Julia, we've talked about the number of migrants arriving in New York City and how the U.S.'s broken immigration system is not set up to allow for smooth processes. So I'd like to talk now about one solution that lawmakers and immigration advocates like yourself have been calling for, and that's expedited work authorization. The United States is experiencing a labor shortage. Why can't migrants legally work as soon as they get here? So how quickly people can work depends on how they've come into the United States. For people who are put into removal proceedings and they're applying for asylum, Congress has said that they have to wait 180 days before they can get work authorization. That was put into law so that work authorization wasn't an incentive for people to come to the U.S. and file asylum applications. The idea was that the government should be able to adjudicate asylum claims within those 180 days. And if it failed, then people should be able to support themselves as those asylum cases took longer. But right now it's taking four and a half years or more for asylum cases to be completed. So most asylum seekers are reaching those 180 days. They're able to get work authorization and they can work in the United States for years before they get that yes or no answer on their asylum claims. For people who come to the U.S. through humanitarian parole, So that's what's happening for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans who have a U.S. sponsor. That's also happening for people who make an appointment at a port of entry through the new app and come in. They can apply for work authorization right away, but it's taking the government four months to decide on those work authorization applications. And there are barriers to applying to parolees have to pay $410 to apply for work authorization unless they complete a really complicated fee waiver process that has to happen on paper. 
And we've heard that, you know, only a small share of people who have come in through appointments at a port of entry have actually applied for work authorization. Only 20% have applied so far. So it seems like people don't know about this process or they're facing barriers to applying because they have to apply through a through a government form that's only available in English and they may not know how to complete that process on their own. Can you explain what humanitarian parole is? The executive branch has the right to let people in through something called humanitarian parole if they're facing an urgent humanitarian situation. And on a case-by-case basis, the government decides to let them into the United States even though they don't have a valid visa for entry. This has been used in a lot of different ways over time. This is how we allowed in people coming after the fall of Saigon, after the Vietnam War. This is how the over 70,000 Afghans who were evacuated to the United States came in. This is the status being given to Ukrainians that come through the Uniting for Ukraine program. But people with parole don't have permanent legal status in the U.S. They don't have a path to citizenship. They can stay and they can work. Um, but they're only here on a temporary basis. And is there a specific timeline for how temporary that is? It depends on the specific parole grant for the CHNV parole, for the parole for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. That's a two-year grant of parole. For people making the appointments at the port of entry, that's also a two-year grant of parole. So can you talk about this idea that some migrants are making false asylum claims? So that's been a reason why Congress hasn't wanted to make changes to the laws around how long it takes for a migrant to receive work authorization. I think what's much more common than people making false claims is that people are fleeing some kind of dangerous situation that may not qualify them for asylum. Our asylum laws are very specific. They recognize persecution for very specific reasons. So if somebody is fleeing general violence in their community, they might have a real and urgent humanitarian need, but they might not qualify for asylum. Or depending on which immigration judge they face, if they're facing domestic violence or gang violence, their asylum claims may or may not be recognized. There may be people who are filing for asylum only to get work authorization. Anecdotally, I've heard of that the most when someone actually doesn't know how our immigration laws work. They go to a lawyer. The lawyer says, I can get you work authorization. And then what that lawyer does or notario does is file for asylum, even though the person doesn't know that they're filing an asylum claim. There may be some migrants who know that they don't qualify for asylum. They just want to come and work and they file for work authorization. But I think it's much more common that people have a need for protection, but they may or may not actually qualify for asylum at the end of the process. How many migrants are are waiting on work authorization right now? And by that, I mean, like, how many have already applied for work authorization and are, are waiting for a response from the government? We know that there are 1.6 million applications pending for employment authorization. Some of those are people who came across the border. Some of those are a wide variety of other people in other kinds of circumstances that also need to apply for work authorization. For people who have humanitarian parole, the wait is about four months. For people who are applying for asylum, the wait is about two months. The Biden administration did say that they are going to work to expedite that work authorization for parolees. 
they said they're planning to get to an average processing time of 30 days. So we'll have to see if they're able to reach that shorter timeline. So I want to come back to that, but I I do want to hear a little bit more about the background for our work authorization laws and and just what what was going on uh, in 1996 around that time for Congress to want to create that time restriction. In 1996, there was kind of a general push to strengthen immigration enforcement and also to narrow some of the pathways that were seen as creating loopholes for migrants to come to the United States. There had been periods when people were filing for asylum just in order to get work authorization. And so there was a sense that if there was this 180-day wait, that could reduce that incentive for applications that were purely seeking work authorization rather than really seeking asylum. And do lawmakers believe that the delay will force migrants to rethink their decisions across the border? And and to what you've mentioned before, it, it almost seems like we have seen that play out. I don't know for sure, but I would really question how many migrants who are coming to the border know that if they apply for asylum and wait 180 days, they could get work authorization. Some of that news might be traveling back, but I think the broader message that if you come to the border, you may be removed, but you may be let into the United States. And if you're let in, you'll be allowed to stay for years while you wait for your immigration court case to proceed. I suspect that that is kind of the bigger message that people are receiving and kind of the nitty gritty of how you get work authorization may be lost, you know, across all of the many things that people are thinking about as they make migration decisions. So lawmakers, including Mayor Adams, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, and lawmakers in in cities like Chicago and Boston, they've all called on the federal government to expedite work permits. And the federal government did take action. Biden announced that nearly half a million Venezuelan migrants who came to the U.S. by July 31st will receive temporary protected status, which will allow them to live and work legally in the United States for 18 months. So how do you see this playing out on the ground? Like, does this mean that things are going to be fixed instantly? Or do Venezuelans have to go through the same process uh, that existed before, but but now there's just a, a change in how long they have to wait? Without further changes, this actually won't help people get work authorization any faster, I don't think. If Venezuelans who are in the U.S. already have humanitarian parole or have already applied for asylum, that might be a faster path to work authorization than applying for TPS. So U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has enormous backlogs, millions and millions of various kinds of applications, and they're really struggling to get through all of them. So there are long delays in adjudicating all kinds of applications, including TPS applications. Right now, they're taking 20 months to adjudicate TPS applications from Venezuelans. That's even before this new grant. And that's more time than the TPS grant length. TPS is valid for 18 months. They're taking 20 months. The government under the law could be issuing work authorization documents to people who apply for TPS. As soon as that person has applied and the government sees that that application looks to be valid on its face, But generally, the government is waiting until they're pretty far along in processing that TPS application before they approve the work authorization. So while there's a two-month wait for work authorization once you apply for asylum seekers, and there's a four-month wait 
for parolees, it seems like the wait for TPS applicants is longer, maybe six or eight or 12 months. So without further changes, it's not actually clear how this helps. It would help Venezuelans who are in the U.S. who haven't applied for asylum and don't have parole. Now they have a clear status they can apply for that will give them work authorization. But I'm very curious to see if we see further changes coming from the Biden administration. It seems like this TPS grant was in response to the governors and mayors who have been calling for it. And so they might be thinking right now about what else they can do to try to get those TPS applicants their work authorization faster. And we might see other changes coming. At least it seems like that would be politically important to do to be responsive to those calls from local officials. Is this move akin to basically putting a a Band-Aid over a problem? Like, how does this help us in the long run? I think so in a couple of ways. The delays in processing applications of any kind, this is a huge challenge for the government. It's a huge challenge for immigration courts. It's a huge challenge for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. They need vastly more resources to be able to get through their workloads. They also probably need to find much more efficient ways of operating to get through their workloads. And this all has really big implications for immigration because it creates these big backlogs that send mixed messages to migrants about what's available in the United States and also delays people's ability to work. The TPS isn't going to address the fact that many migrants are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border without legal status in the United States. There are such enormous push factors in the region right now, and we have a really strong economy, and all of that is leading a lot of people to come. And whether or not there's TPS, whether or not work authorization comes in two months or four months or 12 months, you know, I don't think is really going to change what's happening at the border and the fact that many migrants are showing up to the United States and needing assistance. So I'm curious about who's falling through the cracks here. When we have Biden you know, giving uh, Venezuelans TPS, then we have folks who are, are coming in through humanitarian parole. Like, who are the people who are not receiving an opportunity to get expedited employment authorization? Some of the people who have come across the border in recent years may have access to TPS and others, many others will not. Um, Some migrants are getting parole through various channels and others are not. There's also the long-term resident unauthorized immigrant population in the United States. We have an estimated around 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. Most of them have been here for 10 years or more. And most of those folks don't have any access to legal status and they likely are unable to apply for asylum at this point because there's a one-year filing deadline. They don't have access to any of these new parole programs. Some of them have access to TPS through really old TPS designations, but most of them don't, and they don't have the right to work in the United States. They do face that threat of deportation, and most of them have no way to get in line for any kind of legal status in the United States. So can you comment on how uh, the local economy stands to gain or maybe even be hurt by migrants working legally sooner? I mean, we know that a lot of migrants do work without work authorization, but those jobs tend to be low paying jobs. And, you know, there's a high risk of exploitation when someone doesn't have work authorization. We hear about migrants who are being paid below minimum wage, who have their wages stolen, who face other challenges. 
When migrants have work authorization, they can earn more money. If they're arriving to the U.S. with skills and credentials, they can make use of those. Without work authorization, people are generally working in restaurants or in construction or cleaning buildings or other kind of entry-level jobs. If they have work authorization and they have skills that they can transfer to the United States, they can find their way into professional jobs. And even without professional skills, they can earn higher wages. That all benefits the government in the sense that migrants are generally paying taxes. Whether or not they have work authorization, they're generally paying taxes. But when they earn more, they can pay higher taxes and contribute more. They're also just able to support themselves better and less likely to have to rely on the government for support. So in the past 15 years, Congress hasn't been able to agree on how to update the country's immigration laws. We have seen some movement right, with Biden's recent announcement allowing uh, Venezuelans to get temporary protected status. But do you think that something will change soon uh, as a result of what's happening in New York City? Unfortunately, the safe money is always on Congress being unable to tackle immigration. We're seeing Congress, you know, struggle to even pass the budget, much less tackle contentious issues like immigration. And there's not broad agreement on what the solutions are. Some would like to close the border, which, you know, is not possible under current laws. Some would like to offer a path to legal status for unauthorized immigrants. Some would like to really restrict our asylum system. And we're just seeing that the two sides are so far apart on these issues that it's really difficult to agree on on even really narrow reforms to immigration. So how much of Congress's inaction is based on xenophobia? It seems like lawmakers on both sides of the aisle fare that reducing wait times for work permits will encourage more migrants to cross the border illegally. What do you think about that fear? And, and is there xenophobia in that? I think in our politics, there are a lot of arguments that are framed around a fear of cultural change, whether or not that xenophobia, you know, a lot of the opposition to migration seems not so much based on facts, but rather a feeling that immigration is changing our country and changing the opportunities available to U.S. born people. The reasons that people are leaving their homes and the reasons that they're choosing the United States as a destination are so overwhelming that whether or not migrants can work quickly or work after a long wait is probably a pretty small factor in their decision making. And I guess folks who are skeptical about the value of immigration or think that immigration presents a threat to our way of life might be seizing on work authorization or other aspects of immigration just as a way to oppose immigration at all. And we know that there are some voices that that don't even want legal immigration. They may not even want high-skilled immigration to the United States, much less kind of a welcoming attitude or welcoming policies for people who are coming without advance permission. Is there just one solution or, or one change that you think Congress or the, the Biden administration can make to, to make things easier for cities like New York City? I'm not sure if I could settle on one, <laughs> but maybe three. <laughs> sure, three is great. Um, <laughs> I mean, one is that there should be more federal support for cities, more funding. This year, there's an $800 million fund that's available for cities and nonprofit organizations to apply for reimbursement for services that have been provided to migrants. The future of that funding is uncertain as the rest of our federal budget is uncertain, but that funding hasn't been sufficient and has been really important at the level that it was. A second thing is I think there just needs to be more coordination a lot of migrants who are arriving may be open to other destinations and they may be better able to get by in places where the cost of living is lower. 
many people will want to go where they know someone or where they have a community that they can join. But for people who are open to other locations, there probably should be more coordination to help people into places where they could be successful and where the community can support them. And then third, Congress needs to update our immigration laws. If we could create a work pathway for employers to sponsor workers across the skill spectrum where we really need workers, then that would create a legal avenue for people to come with work authorization, with legal status, with an employer ready to hire them, um, and they would be set up for success in the country, and that could take the pressure off of the border. Julia, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The immigration system can be a lot to navigate. After the break, we'll sit down with someone who helps folks figure it out every day. It's the weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in for John Quillen Hill. New York and other big cities are dealing with an influx of migrants. It can be hard to understand something like this from a bird's eye view. So let's zoom in on someone who knows this issue firsthand. My name is Carla Stolaza, and I'm the managing director of the immigration practice at the Bronx Defenders. I just want to talk about how you help migrants and immigrants check their eligibility for work authorization. What does that look like and where do you even start? So the first thing that it's important to highlight is that there is not a way to obtain work authorization as a standalone benefit. You can only get work authorization if you're eligible to some form of relief or have received some type of permission to be in the United States. Only then you can file an employment authorization application. So our first interview It's a deep dive into the person's family history, immigration history, physical, mental health, history of themselves, their family members, any contacts with any other systems. All of that informs our determination of whether that person might be eligible for some relief. And then that determines when and whether they are eligible to apply for employment authorization. Have you found that migrants are aware of the U.S.'s work authorization process, or maybe some of them know that they can get work authorization, but don't necessarily know how to go about seeking it? Some people are aware, and they don't know how to do it themselves, or they don't have the language skills to do it because they don't speak English, can't fill out the forms. There was also a, an indication last night in the communication issued by the Department of Homeland Security that they believe that many people who have been granted parole are not aware that they're eligible for an employment authorization document. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening. It, it, it might be true that some people are unaware, but also the problem there is that people are granted parole perhaps for a year. So they're only eligible for an employment authorization for that year, the duration of parole. And in our experience, the government has been very hesitant to renew that parole. And employment authorization applications can take a year to be adjudicated. So by the time that we meet people that might be eligible based on parole, their parole is about to expire and they won't even have time to file an application and have it adjudicated, have the card issued to them and be able to use it. 
So I don't know if the issue really is like people not knowing as much as it is the system not being meaningful in providing people an opportunity to apply for, for an employment authorization document. So I want to back up a little bit to just kind of understand how work authorizations happen, right? Because we've heard Governor Hochul, we've heard Mayor Adams basically beg the federal government to expedite work authorization. Biden responded and said uh, Venezuelans will get temporary protected status uh, in order to expedite work authorization. So can you talk a little bit about the 180 days? Is that from when they're seeking asylum? Who does that apply to? Uh, and is it actually just 180 days in a lot of cases? The 180 days is a moment in which asylum applicants are eligible for an employment authorization. At about 150 days, they can submit the application and get the process started. But that initial application takes about a month for asylum seekers, sometimes a little bit longer. Then you have TPS, temporary protected status. For folks in that category, it's taking, I will say, over a year or sometimes two years for the employment authorization document to be approved and issued. And sometimes we have some clients who whose employment authorization expired while they have another one, like renewal pending, it just like they have like successive applications pending because they keep expiring. How do they even keep track of this? And is that basically your role to help them stay on top of this and keep track of these various uh, applications? For the people we represent, we keep track and we advise them when they have to come back for a renewal. Renewals are much slower. The initial application, the turnaround is quite quick, but then the renewal that could take another year. There is an automatic extension of that application if they file in a timely way, but you can imagine that life can get on the way of people. Sometimes people are not, like if they're not represented by counsel, they might miss it or they might not find anyone to help them. And when people lose, like they have, when they have employment authorization, then they lose it because it expired and they were not able to renew it on time. Like they usually lose their job. So it's a very difficult situation. So I'd love to hear more about what it's like for you and your organization to basically work with migrants through this process. Like what kinds of roadblocks uh, do you all tend to run into when you're trying to help migrants apply for authorization? Many people are having a hard time obtaining government-issued IDs to be able to include them, include a copy of them in the work authorization. That's a requirement. You can imagine when people have traversed half a continent, being shuffled from the border, sometimes against their will in buses, and then put through a very complex asylum system that keeps getting them out and having them re-enroll. A lot of documents get lost. And we've experienced an issue with city respite centers where people are, are living temporarily, where they won't provide people like certification of address so they can even get like a city ID for their application. So that is posing some, some difficulties. Additionally, for people who are renewing their application, there is a $410 filing fee. For people who are renewing it based on asylum or people who are submitting their initial application on other basis, there's a pretty hefty filing fee. And it, sometimes it's very difficult to obtain the documentation to waive that filing fee. 
or to, of course, gather the, the money when you're not able to work or like are anyway living in very precarious uh, circumstances. I would love to hear more about what other parts of the application, like what, what kind of, what does the application look like? What are they expected to, what else are they expected to complete as part of the application? The application is quite simple. If you're trained and, and you understand English, it's just biographical information, some questions about that type of application that forms the basis for the employment authorization. So if they're applying because they're eligible for asylum or, or because they have been granted TPS or parole, that type of information. And then you have to also submit the evidence. It's not a lengthy application, but it's very confusing if you are not an expert in immigration law. So is there a part of the work authorization process that people aren't talking about enough? Uh, some Maybe it's something that you have to do for clients that people aren't aware of or, or something that they experience as they wait or maybe even after they get authorized? I think the fact that the waits are pretty extensive. It's something that is not well understood. And also that there's no way to just file an application. That it's, it's not like go to the post office and get your employment authorization. You need to have another basis. And the law is very stacked against immigrants. And a lot of them will lose their eligibility for their employment authorization as their case progresses. And sometimes we've had clients who get stuck in a process where they lost their eligibility for employment authorization, but their case is still on appeals. So they have to go back to living in the United States without employment authorization. It's not very linear. Another aspect that is not being considered, if people live in shelters, and so many of the shelters are forcing people to leave after 60 days and then come back, there is a really high risk of people's documents being lost in the mail. And that to me is very concerning that people are not going to receive their documents. If we represent them, we usually ask for the document to come to our office, if that's okay with our clients. But a lot of people are going to be served by models that are not full representation, like they're not connected permanently to an attorney. Some people are I feel like they're going to lose their, their card even if they get disconnected from their residence. They're, that were at the moment of filing, then they might lose their card. So you mentioned earlier that there might not be an immediate impact of uh, the Biden's announcement that they would expand uh, TPS. But what about long-term impacts? Like, do you still think in the long run that this is a solution to the problem or will it be just more of a temporary Band-Aid for it? Definitely a temporary Band-Aid. It's a temporary Band-Aid that sadly will likely stay um, as a temporary measure, as a stopgap without a replacement. That's what we've seen with many other countries that have been granted TPS. And then there hasn't been a meaningful movement to allow people to obtain more secure status. And people are very vulnerable if they're in TPS status. They need that administration that is in power decides to redesignate their country every number of years. And that is very subject to political turmoil and changes in administration. It's, very, it's a very precarious status. It's not a permanent solution. It's, I think, a great start, but there needs to be a more comprehensive way of looking at people and 
and people's cases and the, and the law. And there's many things that can change that will expand our interpretation of who's eligible for asylum, for example, um, the way that our immigration agencies have interpreted it in an incredibly narrow way. That doesn't need to be that the case and that doesn't need action from Congress to change. And there's many other things that uh, this administration has discretion to improve in order to expand benefits and uh, in order to provide avenues for people to access a more secure immigration status and eventually citizenship. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that because that's my next question. Like, what would you like to see in terms of support from federal and city governments, state governments? Like, what are those avenues of things that they can open to support migrants to becoming U.S. citizens more quickly or at all? What I will say is that I would like to see a system that values people equally and values people's right to movement and to belong in in their communities and with their families. And that doesn't punish people because they came here seeking protection or because they came here for financial reasons or because they, after being here, were policed and surveilled in a way that resulted in criminal convictions. And now they are ineligible for certain benefits. I would like an approach that values the full humanity of our community members and allows them to remain in the United States permanently. So I have a final two-part question. What would you say to the people who are calling this moment a crisis? And what do you think folks outside of New York City should understand about this issue? This is not a crisis. This is a moment where a lot of people are coming. We've seen this in the past. The sky is not falling. We have enough resources for everybody. And it is very difficult to see this rhetoric of scarcity being used, weaponized against people who need support to get on their feet. And while they integrate into their communities, rejoin their families who've been living here and, you know, have a right to be here. And and there's no harm that comes from that. And, and there's no, there's no real scarcity. We are a very rich city in a very rich country. We should prioritize human dignity um, on our communities over, over anything else, really. Carla, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Julia Gillette and Carla Osolasa for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host for today, Fabio Licinius. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it free by going to vox.com slash give. <laughs>